kicking off the program today and hopefully it'll uh, be a little better than yesterday in the form of my end of this thing with all of the stuff going on we've got a three-day holiday here in ecuador so anytime you say the word holiday they uh, freeze and everything kind of quiets down so hopefully maybe we won't have the problems we had yesterday but uh roger sales here with you of course radio ranch and people's patriot network and our daily entries it's a friday brent hadn't joined us yet but i know he's around so he must have got distracted or something we'll probably hear from him here shortly um as i was saying yesterday was the i I guess it was a repercussion from everything that's going on down here in ecuador and and probably particularly me down where i am in this little kind of hole in the country going into a valley a little bit here on the top of the edge and uh But today it sounds like it's probably a lot better. Things look to be reacting uh, better. And uh, let's see if we get these volumes up. I'll tell you, this is all of this stuff you got to do here when you're doing everything yourself. I don't know. That doesn't seem to make a difference. Um, I wanted to thank Jack and Murr and the uh, uh, DP and the people that kind of filled in for me yesterday. I did just get that program uploaded just a minute ago. Um, upload speed was the problem yesterday, and then I went out after the show, didn't get a chance, and I wasn't going to even try, attempt it last night, and uh, so this morning got that knocked out. And the other day, by the way, Bob uh, mentioned that uh, the shows last week, after the technical problems we had, the that early part, whatever, you know, it's one problem or another, it seems like. Um, I got those finally uploaded, Bob, or anybody else that wanted to listen to last Thursday and Friday show and the Friday with Brent. Hopefully, we're going to have a show with Brent today. Um, Pretty unusual for him. So I just tried to call him, didn't get him, and just said call when ready. So I'm assuming we'll get him checking in here. Um, As I said, it's a three-day holiday here today, so everything is like, pleasantly quiet um and those of you who hang around here with any regularity have heard me complain and mention about these roosters here in ecuador that uh here comes brent calling in there uh the roosters that are down here that crow all, that crow all night i had one right behind me in the adjacent property and uh he eats all, all night long, you know, 11, 12 o'clock, 2, 3 in the morning, and then the roosters across the valley there because the sound deck goes so easily. We're answering back. Well, evidently, something happened to him. I don't know whether he died or uh, uh, the, the dogs got him or whatever, but he hadn't been crowing, crowing here lately, so it's real quiet. Hey, Jack's joined us, and Brent's there. Hey, guys, welcome, Brent. I figured you'd drop in here when you when you got around to it. Well, I had a, a wait for the call, and then at my computer, I, I set it so I can get your call. The computer kicks off, and then I realize it's off. You probably tried to call, but good uh, to be here, Roger. Yeah. Yeah. As always. I'm, the country of Ecuador hasn't blown up yet. 
No, it's very interesting. Jack just joined us, too. Uh, we didn't know from yesterday's fiasco whether I could participate in my program, <laughs> quite frankly. But it appears that I can. And uh, we're in a three-day holiday, and I, I kind of get the feeling, I'm certainly hoping, that it puts a damper on the situation down here. Jack was nice enough, and some of the listeners, Murr and DP was on there, and uh, kind of took over the show because uh, I just couldn't communicate so uh, uh, with them without big delays and problems and all this stuff. Anyway, we're past that. I want to thank them for handling that. Uh, so uh, I, I wanted to talk to you, though, because you got to uh, meet one of our listeners here recently. Yeah, Chuck. Got to talk to Chuck from Oklahoma, the beekeeper. Yeah. We spent uh afternoon and well, a day or two with him and his daughter. Uh just visiting, you know. Yeah. He's a delightful daughter and he himself is a friendly soul because we knew that on the radio. But uh, in person he's even more friendly. <laughs> you know, Chuck but, is just like He's like Jack. Jack uh, on the phone with us the same way. They're just like, I call J- Jack just a red dirt Georgia clay boy, you know, and that's kind of the impression I get of Chuck. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting him yet. Uh, hopefully one of these days we'll get to, but the impression that I get from talking to him all this time is just exactly what you said, just humble and and and, and a God-fearing man and wants to go about his business and, you know, all that's just a good guy. Like all of our people, we connect on a frequency. I've often thought, Brent, that there's a frequency here and uh, uh, that we all vibrate on is one of the uh, at least ideas I've had on why we come together, you know, and why people uh-huh. react, whether it's a frequency in my voice uh, that sometimes attract people uh, uh, or whatever. But I've always felt it's some kind of a part of it. Well, we're glad to have you. Uh, hopefully, we've been going through a lot of riots and stuff, not personally. It hadn't happened too much around us, uh, the, yeah. the, the expat people we know here, but certainly in the cities and in the older parts and the centers of the Quito and some of the other areas, I suppose. Uh, we've had a pretty tough 10 days or two weeks. And it all goes back, as usual, IMF loans. And uh, just to add an antidote to all the coverage, uh, Jack sent me last night, and I got to watch this morning a real good RT interview with a guy that uh, working on his Ph.D. in Mexico that was one of the administrators of the central bank here under the previous administration. And evidently, some of the real important clauses in this IMF loan they gave us that they're now enforcing uh, was to get the central bank back into private hands, independent central bank and having government's funds uh, deposited in the local banks or or their bank or all this IMF stuff. And it always, as usual, circulates around control of the central bank. Uh Uh-huh. Well, uh Henry Ford had an idea about that, and he made the point that, well, what an idea. He experienced it, and he lived life, and he said, uh, if there's that kind of trouble, then you're experiencing trouble down there. Just look around, and you'll see who's behind it, and it's always one or two or three of them, and they're always the the people of the Pharisite persuasion, and they're, they're back there somewhere. Yep. I can't believe that these riots, that these riots, there's any sense to them that they accomplish nothing but cause trouble and 
chaos and put power into the hands of people that um, that want to use it to uh, abuse others. The people that are rioting are not the ones that really make the difference. They're not the ones that can pull any strings. They're just the dodos and the useful idiots of the evil empire that are out there raising Cain. I don't find anything in the Bible, right? nothing in the Bible that authorizes riots. I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I don't find anything that authorizes even marches, all the foolish stuff that people do. That When you're involved in that kind of behavior, you're in mob action and you're controlled by, by um, evil men. I don't care whether you think you're marching for a good thing or a bad thing. Marching, rioting, demonstrating, all that baloney. I don't see any sense in it at all. Must be very emphatic about my statements when I say that so people don't get the idea. And, you know, I made, <laughs> made fun of the Canadians one time because I thought it was funny. Somebody sent me a picture of a, of a sign, somebody holding a sign by themselves and uh, just standing on the street corner, and the caption said, this is the Canadian ver version of a riot. Because <laughs> they don't have many riots up in Canada that I remember. They don't do that. The kind of thing that's going on down here doesn't happen up there. Well, And it, there's a different... It used to yeah. didn't. It used to didn't. With all the immigration that they've promoted through Canada the few last decades, they may have some of that in the future. Well, they may. That's right. And uh, it comes down to, as everything in life, everything comes down to your religious point of view. And to deny that is to be a liar or to be a, um, a presumptive silly or a combination thereof. But um, a man or woman's response back to whoever they deem their final arbiter of right and wrong, from whose decision there is no meaningful appeal, that's their God whether it's themselves or some other person or some non-living thing like a statue or a picture, a statue of Mary or a picture of some of a Buddha or a statue, something, some created thing, living or dead, um, your response to whoever you deem to be your lawgiver is uh, will, it will dictate what you do. It may be secret to you. You may not tell anybody. Matter of fact, in all false religion, the gods of false religions fundamentally were always secret. Every every family, the, the founding families of Rome, of which there are about 30, about 30 founding families, thereabouts, each one has um, people estimated, historians of the day estimate each family to have about 100 people in it, including servants and all that, slaves. Uh, in those families, each family had a, a private, secret religion, and it was headed up by the patriarch of the family, and it was done in secret. The, uh, the word Latin, which, which is the foundational Roman tongue and an ancient tongue, means hidden, secret, and they had incantations that they used that were known only to them. It was the secret Babylonian religions. Yep. You know, it comes out in all sorts of manifestations, everything from Masonic masonry to knights of columbus and um well all of those lodges and all that that's all out of babylonianism the secretness of it where it's hidden and only us initiates get to know and we have a higher knowledge and the the jews called it gnosticism in the first century and that was that was just more the same uh, secret religion from babylon but now people, individually even, it's the propensity of mankind to take his false religion and keep it secret. There are a lot of them claim to be Christian folks, and they know they're liars, and they like the idea of having this secret religion, this, 
this thing they don't tell anybody, just them, and they, they live by it, and it's evil. It's the doctrines, as Paul the Apostle says, of demons. Christianity is not that way. It never has been the true religion of the true lawgiver. We call it Christianity. It's been called different things down through the centuries. But the true religion of the true lawgiver is open, open. But the only people that can understand it, grasp it, or even want to, are those to whom it has been given. Uh, it's, not, it's not ultimately up to us. The lawgiver himself makes that choice. But we... The strange and odd thing about it is odd to us humans, us mere mortals, is that we are to keep it open and tell others about it. We are not to hide it. And uh, the odd thing on the other side is we can't cause people to grasp it, understand it, or even want to. Back to you, Roger. No, I say that it has to, it has to be a wellspring from within. Something has to spark people, you know. And uh, I wanted to tell you in, the, in the, just the last the last night or this morning something i watched you'll find this interesting uh papa the pope has come out with a public statement that jesus christ while he was not on earth was not a god he only returned as to he's god as he's that's a public statement it's going to cause some real furor through the roman catholic church evidently and I think, I don't know if I saw it on Rick Wiles. I was trying to watch Rick Wiles at a, yesterday's edition, got partway through it. But it may have been on there. Uh, but isn't that interesting? Well, yeah. Uh, but did he say he's not a god? Or is no, that the way he just put it? Or said, not? I, the way that I interpreted what I saw was a, a guy uh -huh. from the Vatican speaking, some Catholic guy on a Catholic source that I think Rick Wiles was playing. I guess that's where I saw it. And uh, and he put the exact verbiage on the screen, and it appeared to me to to say that he wasn't a god while he was here. Oh, he gained he he earned godhood probably. Kind of like evidently or something, and I don't know. It was a short blip as earlier this morning. I was still drinking coffee, so but I thought it was relevant enough to mention. Oh, no, no question. And that's common, though. And uh, the Roman Church has said all sorts of crazy things. It depends upon what they have to say and promote to keep political power. That means keep the money rolling in, keep the fascination going, and be ecumenical enough, make sure the tent's big enough that everyone can come in. And where you live, people bring in all sorts of animism, all of their native religions, all the trinkets and the trappings of whatever paganism they possess. The same thing is true in the Philippine Islands. The same thing is true in Mexico. And the same thing is true in Europe and the United States, but to a lesser degree. But uh, Rome doesn't care. They're just like, they're the evil empire. They don't care uh, who else you worship just so you pay homage to them and give them money. Well, that's the same policy of the Roman Empire. You could worship in the Roman Empire anybody you wanted to worship to the full extent, but you had to pay homage to the chief god of the Roman system, which it was the emperor. You must every year, you must go to the temple in your local town and drop a pinch of incense into the, into the bowl and declare by that verbal act that you acknowledge the supreme deity of Caesar. Well, that's the same way it is with Pope. The Pope, he is now the Caesar. He's the ghost of Rome, sitting on the grave of Rome. And uh, I think it's right to add, wielding the law of Rome, the canon law, the code of Justinian, the, load of, the law of the Roman Empire. And those that, those that follow him do so in, in, well, you say they can't help it. They were raised that way from 15 generations or more, and that's true. But God is no respecter of persons. 
and the consequences, the consequences of all that, again, I was saying a while ago, that's not my choice, and that's his choice. That's nobody's choice but his. You, uh, those that are not followers of Jesus Christ are dead, the Bible says. Dead means dead. Dead and trespasses and sin. If you're dead, you don't hear anything. You don't respond to anything. And that's the whole point. Without the new birth, you can't even have ears to hear. That's the whole story. The whole presentation of the Bible from start to finish, and it fleshes itself out in a overt way in the old, in the New Testament, that you're dead. You you cannot bring yourself to life. God is the giver of life. He brings you to life, as it were, and He gives you the new birth, the birth from above. After you're born of the flesh, you get you're born from above, and you receive ears and eyes. You see, you understand. Oh, now I get it. Well, of course you get it. You've got eyes and ears, but you didn't get those on your own, and you didn't earn them. That is the message of Christianity. Back to you, Roger. That's a mouthful, Brent. Let me poll some of them. We had a bunch of people. Jack joined us. Uh, DP's there. Chris is in there, and Cody joined us too. Uh, Jack, I want to thank you for uh, taking the helm yesterday and getting us through the two hours. Yes, uh, of course. Uh, my pleasure. I'll, I'll do it anytime, and was ready for today if need be. No, I think we're all right today. We might have gotten over the hump with this holiday. Uh, Doc, DP, you got anything to add, or are you just listening in? I'm going to, I guess, get to people in the appearance of their call or the number. Doc, anything to say or just listening? Okay, well, I guess he's just listening. Uh, Chris, good morning, front and center. What phone are you on today? Well, uh, good, good morning to Brent and yourself. Uh, doing very, very well and listening with great intent and uh, support for all the words that are flowing from Brent's mouth this morning because they are the Semper Veritas, always true, Paul. Yep. It's always a pleasure to have him on Fridays and get the spiritual double shotgun barrel from him. Uh, Cody, what's going on up there, bro? A little bit. Well, got, good, mor good you, morning. You guys are about to get hit with a pretty severe little winter front, or have you already feel? Are you already feeling it? No, we got the rain. I don't know if Brent's around, but I bet you it rained three inches. I was trying to look at Noah to see what the report is. I couldn't find it showing up properly, but it rained all night pretty hard. I guess it's probably three, four inches. I wouldn't doubt it. Maybe just a couple, but uh, it's wet out there this morning. And uh, but no, I was going to mention something to Brent. I, you said something that you're not supposed to, or the protesting is not really in the Bible, but, you know, I would argue that, you know, all the different warring going on is just a, you know, more violent version of a protest where wasn't, didn't God say to go wipe out the Canaanites? And then you had the whole Jericho story. I'm not, I can't talk too, too well versed on it, but it just seems like there's all sorts of places in the Bible where there was, takeovers and warring going on and i would argue that that's just a little more violent version of a protest or an insurrection well no i appreciate your point well cody by the way uh we used to set buckets well we didn't set them out we had feed buckets everywhere we used five gallon buckets for feed buckets and what that's what we got our grease in to to grease our machinery five gallon grease buckets we load the grease gun and when the bucket was empty that became a feed bucket or a seed bucket and those would be sitting outside and we'd come out in the morning and we'd see buckets everywhere and we'd look down in them and see how deep the water was well that would tell you about how many inches of rain you got you could stick it because they were uniform size oh, yeah. yeah and uh, i didn't look this morning but yeah i'm in the i'm in the neck of the woods where you are but i didn't look this morning 
and uh, see, but I do know it rained last night. Well, war, back to your point, uh, well taken, but war is um, <laughs> it's ultimate. Uh, these, these rioters are piss ants. And they're going out making noise. That's all they want to do. They, they want to foment violence and watch other people get hurt, but they themselves then will retreat. This is evil. Rioting and marching has nothing to do with God's law. I can go to God's law and I say, my God's law, the expression of his will, the will of the sovereign, from the front to the back of the Bible, the whole thing, uh, is an expression of what he wants. And anybody would argue otherwise is, um, well, again, that's silliness, but... I don't see in the Bible the place where that is authorized. I, I don't even, I see people going to war, sure. War is war. That's where you go out and you exert your will. Um, when you're marching and rioting, you're not exerting your will. You're just stirring up trouble. You're turning over the manure. You're spitting in the pot. Uh, God doesn't like that. He, what he wants is men to go out. If there's a injustice that must be corrected, and people are trying to hurt us, and they are hurting us, they must be stopped. And the way you do that is you do it quietly, methodically, and you end it. And if you have to kill people, that's what you got to do. But you don't. You don't go out and uh, raise Cain like that. In every case where that occurs through history, and it's a commonplace thing throughout the history of Europe and on, on, on into other parts of the world, when uh, you look in the Bible anciently, the riots, Everywhere you look in the book of Acts, there's a riot, and it was always fomented by the people who were trying to get it, the Apostle Paul and his friends. And the riots were massive. They go on for hours. You can read about them. And what they were trying to do was um, get Paul shut up or killed. They wanted to incite the Roman government to do their dirty work. It was always fomented by the Judaizers who followed Paul everywhere he went and tried to kill him and did a lot of other nasty things to him in the meantime, but always stirring up trouble, which never results in anything good in the end. Uh, war is bad enough. Sometimes it's necessary. But um, even in war, things don't always come out good in the end. Look at Europe. Uh, what's happened to Europe? It's done because of war. And that was fomented probably by the wrong people, too. But to come back to the point, if you get involved in marching, uh, like Martin Luther King or riots like you see in Hong Kong, you're involved in mob action. And you're being controlled by people that are more powerful than you and love to watch other people get hurt and do their dirty work so they can gain control. Um, I don't see it. I don't see it at all in the Bible. I do see plenty of examples of it in the book of Acts and the gospel records. Of course, the murder of Jesus Christ was accomplished through a riot. Back to you, Cody. Well, okay, so if you're... So you go straight to war? You said that silently, and then you kill whoever you... I mean, what? Well, explain a little it. bit more in detail. Let, the Bible let, says that you're supposed to just wipe out your enemy right away and not give them a well, warning with, Cody, with a riot? Or let, let's, get, let's get back to the word thing that is so important here. You're talking war, mm -hmm. and then you're mixing in what I conceive to be nonviolent protests. Uh, and the the one that I would throw in the ring would be Gandhi. I mean, Gandhi got an evil empire out of India with his nonviolent protests. Uh, but I think the word that you're looking for, those things internally that start out to possibly be just protests, turn into a word called revolution. That's not war with somebody that's adjacent to you. It's internal. But Brett, I think Brett started out the conversation with saying even protests are not even in the Bible, let well, he alone. He did say that. 
He did Re- say that. Rebellion. He did say that. Yeah, yeah, say, uh, now, if you can find it, what? Uh, what? correct me. I'll, I'd certainly go the other way, but I don't find it there, and yeah. I don't see the protest ever uh, accomplished anything worthwhile. Go back, Roger. I'm interrupting. Go ahead. Well, I just have this. Uh, what about, like, the gatherings, like the Sermon on the Mount? Was that not like a protest? No, the Sermon on the Mount was 12 men. There were a crowd around there. There was a crowd because I always followed Jesus Christ because they wanted food and they wanted to be healed. Most of them weren't interested in the truth, of course. And he said that. He said, the only reason you follow me is because I feed you and heal you. But there were those few there that saw what he was doing, as John Locke put it, as the as providing the credit to his proposals of truth. In other words, the miracles of God are not for us, primarily. Somebody may get a benefit out of them, of course. But the miracles that he performed, and he his life was a blaze of suspensions of the laws of nature. That's what a miracle is, a suspension of the laws of nature and the created order, the normal course of those laws. He suspended them in order to give credit to his proposal of truth. There were only 43 periods of about 40 years of the history of mankind that miracles were God used miracles among men. The first was the 40 years were the days of Moses, when Moses was writing, of course, the foundation to all of Scripture, called the Torah today in some, by some people, and also called the Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the fi- first five writings of the Bible, the foundation. And then there were 40 years during the days of Elijah and Elisha, the prophets, and there were about 40 years during the days of Jesus Christ's sojourn on earth and his 12 chosen jury members impaneled to witness the evidence, which the miracles were a part of that, the evidence of his identity as a very God of very God and very man of very man. God in human flesh reduced to the span of a man. Well, during those 40 years, the Bible was three periods of 40 years. The Bible was written, the whole Bible. And during those three periods, those miracles were there. God provided that to provide credibility to what was being recorded to the law and the testimony. And that's the, what Jesus Christ uh, says, of course, often in the gospel. He says, if you, if I, they said to him, tell us point blank who you are. We're tired of you beating around the bush because he was making it obvious who he was and they knew it, but they wanted to hear him say it. And he wouldn't do that, you see. Uh, he, so he said to them, listen, he said, if um, a man were raised from the dead and other miracles, you wouldn't believe any of that, even if I told you. That's what I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to increase your punishment in hell. You're bound for hell, and there's nothing I can do to save you. You are apostate. You're beyond the point of no return. Uh, and he said, uh, therefore, uh, if you won't believe the, the statements of the prophet Jonah, if you won't believe what's written in the scriptures, there's no amount of miracles going to change your mind. Why? Because you're unpersuadable. God gives the ability to a man to be persuaded. And the word translated faith in the Bible, there are two of them, pistis and pathos, both of them related roots. And they mean, really, at foundation, I wish it were convenient, it were easy to make smooth English and translate them, uh, persuadable. I have persuadableness instead of I had trust. I have trust because that's what those words mean. But you cannot be persuadable, as the Reformers pointed out. You can't be persuadable unless God makes you persuadable. In other words, he presents the evidence to everybody. Evidence. We have it in writing. The Bible is evidence. That's what it is. We have it. And we will be persuaded by it if he has given us this gift called persuadableness. Persuadableness. How does he do that? He does it through the new birth. 
when I was born in the flesh, I was given the gift of persuadableness to please my dad. And I'm still trying to do it. Crazy, isn't it? Here I am, 60-some yeah. years old, and I'm still trying. That is true. Yeah, That's the way God you know, that's the way God made all of us. And when it comes to our Father in heaven, we have the same thing. If you're born from above, Father in the skies, if you're born from above, then he puts that persuadableness in you to want to please him. And the, the start of that is he gives you, as you grow older, just like a baby, you have ears to hear. You begin to pick up on who your parents are. And you begin, the baby begin, begins to stare at mother's face while it's nursing and contemplate dad and listen to the voice. That's what we have as Christian folks that are born from above. That's the clear picture the Bible paints by analogy, analogy so we understand. But I don't find, Cody, back to the point, again, I'd be persuaded if I thought it were there, if you could show me. I don't see any place in the Bible where that's a good thing. I see it in negative light everywhere I look, but and also in history. I think of the fifth monarchy, monarchy movement in England. I think of the, the movement in um, in in, uh, in Saxony, so, uh, hundreds of men were slaughtered unnecessarily. The icon, well, they, they wanted to get rid of the idols, and they went about it the wrong way. Was it good to get rid of idols in northern Germany? Yes, but they went about it the wrong way. How'd they do it? Riots, burning, looting. And that always goes with riots, by the way, burning and looting. It gives great opportunity for it. We've watched this in America for decades. <laughs> we all knew. Yeah, there's a riot, people will be busting windows and stealing televisions. That's the way it's been for death. That's because that's part and parcel of mob action. God has his way of flipping this world over and flipping it upside down, and that's not his way. The apostles of Jesus Christ never engaged in that kind of activity. They never fomented that kind of activity. Like John Wycliffe said, listen, you fellows, he had 70 students he sent out to read the Bible to people. He had translated it into English for the first time, and they were to go out on the highways, the byways, and the corners. He said, look, just go out there and read it. Don't comment on it. Just read it out loud. And don't go looking to be a martyr. If you just do what God says, you'll find martyrs soon enough. Don't worry about that. But what he wants you to do is tell people what he said, and even more important than that, he wants you to do it. And I have found give a personal testimony. If you're committed and promoting the idea of keeping doing what God wants you to do, even in the smallest things, you'll run into big time problems from places you never expected it. Back to you, Cody. Yeah, I, I didn't have much more other than what about, well, I don't know. What about unions and all that then kind of yeah. As long as it stays peaceful, you think it's okay, or you think it's kind of a mob rule situation? It's mob rule. These men are under the control of powerful men yeah, who don't right. banks that don't give a hoot about them, and will destroy them. And in every case, I've seen that happen locally, and I've seen some big ones in this part of the world. Uh, yeah. They lost their jobs. The industry moved. Those guys are in business to make money. They don't care about writers. I can tell you story after story after story just here around where we are, Cody, and up in oh, okay. places like the. Decatur, where Staley's and ADM and Firestone and Caterpillar were, those kind of places. But I don't see any good, and I don't see it in the Bible. Uh, war is quite another matter. That's quite yeah, another yeah. matter. There are rules that govern that. Back back to you, uh, whoever's – somebody's trying to get in there. Well, well yeah, somebody I'll, – I'll Go ahead, Cody, and finish it up. Well, I'll just say one last thing, and I'll let somebody else talk. But, you know, one thing that is interesting to me is kind of separate subject I guess, from the Bible, but – the federal or unions are not legal for uh, government employees in Ecuador, and I don't know if there'd ever be a way to get that, you know, here. But it sounds, it seems like you could, you know, you could justify it because 
since the government has the, in, in, in a sense, unlimited ability to tax, uh, that's the theory, I guess, in Ecuador, because the government has the unlimited ability to tax. It's not just to have unions, you know, in the government. You know, the government can pay what it has to pay to get people to work. I don't know. I'm just, it'd be nice if we could get these darn, you know, unions out of the government. I, you know, that's why we're country yeah. so broke, too, you know. The largest government union um sector in America is now, or the largest union sector is government unions. Yeah. It used to be labor unions in the private sector. It's not anymore. Well, what does that tell you? That means that the people that work for the government have ultimate power, and it's a power of potential violence. That's what it is. That's what unionism is. It's been that way since the beginning. Unionism has been connected to the Bolshevik revolution from the beginning in America, and it always comes back the way you get what you want. You use dynamite, you turn over cars, you burn down buildings. Even in our law, I discovered this in federal court when I was defending a, a gal for attempted murder, and we brought the Hobbs Act in. Well, the Hobbs Act says that violence and furtherance of union purposes is not a crime. It's an exception in our, 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 our criminal scheme in the federal government. That is uncanny. You mean you can use dynamite? Say it again. Say it again. The Hobbs Act allows violence and what? The Hobbs Act. Uh, excuses union members from criminal prosecution in cases of violence where they're furthering the purpose is to further the union uh, you gotta be kidding me whether furthering union purposes uh, their violence is immune from criminal prosecution Um, I've never heard Brent I've never heard that before and I'm uh, that's profound no that's profound I'd never heard it before either and I'm a lawyer but I went into federal court. We tried to use it in the reverse for other people. We said, this is this is unequal protection of the laws. You're prosecuting these people for what you claim is violence, and they didn't even do it, but they, they want to do it. But you've got the Hobbs Act over here that says it's okay to do that kind of thing if you're a union member. That's unequal. That's not right. So, therefore, you should let these people go. Well, that's criminal. Well, that it's just plain yeah. criminal, not just not right. It's criminal. Let them allow them to do criminal acts under some cloak of immunity because they're associated with a mob. That's just ridiculous. Uh, uh, Daryl joined us as who was trying to get in there, uh, and we hadn't heard from him in a few days. So, uh, hey, buddy, what's your take on all this? Well, I uh, I just want to say good morning. It's a beautiful morning here in Alabama, and uh, it's a pleasure to hear you all. And, uh, Brent, uh, you have just really kicked over the can there. Uh, I was, I was really happy to hear you talking about, uh, the, the Babylonian occultists and, uh, the esoteric occultics. And, uh, thank you very much for doing that. Thank you very much. It, I think I don't think people take it seriously. Obviously, you do, and uh, uh, so genuinely, that's that was great because you know it's at the root. It's at the root. You know, it's uh, you know uh, you and I being farmers, we we kind of understand you got to get the root of the weed out, or the the thing's going to grow back again, right? So, uh, Daryl, I've got you back. I lost you for a minute. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, um, you you brought up a really powerful uh, metaphor here some time back. I don't remember exactly when, but it really stuck in my mind. Thank you. Uh, 
And uh, you were talking about culture and cultivating. And uh, having spent uh, countless hours, as I recall, sitting on a Super M with a a row crop front end on it, uh, staring at the ground, cultivating. <laughs> it, 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 it brought back memories. Okay. Uh, you know, you can, you, you probably did some of that where you, you never looked over the front of the tractor, but you was always looking at the ground. So oh, you didn't run out. Trying to keep from covering up the corn plants and keep those fenders on the cultivator. Yeah. Right. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, I sort of gave a little impromptu uh, sermon last night. Uh, I didn't mean to start out that way, but I did. And I, I was using that sort of basic metaphor and analogy with my with my dear friend and neighbor here. And uh, we were working on his motorcycle and talking about stuff. And I got off on that. And uh, I, I said, you know, uh, we, we have cultivated uh, a culture. <laughs> and... And I went into my little story about, you know, cultivating, cultivating a crop. Well, I, I got news for everybody. If you, if you don't, if you want to catch on to this metaphor, the, the, the news is, is that for going on four to five generations, we have planted tares instead of wheat. Yep. It, uh, we literally, literally have uprooted, uprooted the the produce the the crop the real crop and and transposed it with tares and we're growing tares now <laughs> instead of instead of the wheat and we're cultivating it and and the evidence of my opinion on this is in the daily news it's in your life experience it's your friends, family, relatives, neighbors, and associates. Yep. It's the misbehavior and acting out and the perversion and subversion. Uh, this is my this is my thesis. This, I, I I I use this as my evidence. Uh, I challenge anybody to rebut it. Oh, just uh, saw a story. Teach me something, Daryl. Right before the show, I, I saw a story. A fourteen-year-old girl in uh, some little town in Ohio was arrested because she had a hate list of people she wanted to kill, including Trump and a whole bunch of the uh, some of the other people around her. And she was put it on. She may have been screaming for help. She put it on a social media post somewhere, and the cops showed up and arrested her. They're going to try her, take her to court. Okay? Uh, so yeah. there's the terror. And, uh, and you're right. You don't have to yeah. look too far to see the crop of tares that's been sown over a few generations. And, man, it's just downright frightening. Yeah, it, it's been cultivated and nurtured and cared for and fed and fertilized. Yep. I mean, it's a beautiful metaphor. It's just a beautiful metaphor. I, I just wanted to uh, sort of touch on something that uh, Brent and Cody were talking about. Uh, it's really important, and uh, I appreciate I appreciate, uh, Cody always brings so much to, uh, you know, stimulating conversation and, uh, genuinely thank you for that. And, uh, you know, uh, we have, uh, a lot of people, uh, I, my perception is we have a lot of people and more people, uh, Brent and Roger who are sort of 
kind of getting the drift of this, yeah. but they're grasping at straws. They're grasping at straws. And uh, you have to kind of figure out whose rules you're going to play by. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not much of a protester, I have to admit, uh, as far as what passes for protesting. Uh, I'm sort of uh, an insolent sort of uh, hermit kind of guy, and I just don't participate. That's okay. the way to do it. That's, that's, do that's, it. What, that's one of my first forms of protest is uh, I'm not going to willingly participate. And uh, so you can maybe call that an act of civil disobedience, but uh, I don't want to obey the civil laws because I don't derive uh, any benefits from them. And so I've, I've disenfranch- disenfranchised myself and, and I've disconsented. And that's, that's uh, uh, my protest, if you will, uh, being a protestant. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and so you, you don't have to play by their rules that they have set up. You have to kind of figure out whose rules you're going to play by. You're going to play by the civil law rules, uh, or are you going to play by uh, the God of Abraham's rules? Who's your daddy? Uh, are you going to be steady? You're going to be, yeah, who's your daddy? And are you going to be steady and firm? Or are you going to be emotional and erratic and violent? You know, Daryl, uh, what and, my, my subconscious, this, my yeah, subconscious yeah. keeps giving me a phrase I read twenty-seven or eight years ago out of the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. It, it comes to me all the time, so I guess some, that's somebody's giving it to you, and that's the statement in their media section where they said we will get them arguing over issues of little difference. Now, that's important. It's important yeah. for everybody to cognitize yeah. that and realize that you shouldn't be going and wasting your time chasing rabbit trails. Yeah, well, uh, good one. Uh, go ahead, Grant. Uh, yeah. we, have, uh, we have a national debt, and we should be upset about it. That's a, that's a ridiculously silly rabbit trail. It's meaningless. Back to you, Daryl. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, this is, uh, you, you have to parse these things, uh, and, uh, but I, I, I understand, uh, I used to be a very impatient young man, I was prone to um, lashing out, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I, uh, I, I was, uh, uh, pretty predictable in that way. Uh, at this point, I'm much less predictable to the adversary. You're seasoned, and yeah. Uh, so, uh, but I don't play by their rules. I don't. It, it, listen, if you're going to play by their rules, and they get to set the rules. They always get they to always win. Always win. Yep. So yep. don't play by the rules. Don't conflate. Don't conflate. Here, here's. Here's, here's the thought. Uh, don't conflate and, and have a confluence. The mixing of, of their rules and God's rules. Father, uh, Father, our Lord in heaven, the God of Abraham's rules. 
okay? Uh, uh, don't try to mix these. They're, they're oil and water. Don't mix them. Okay? I mean, that, that find, means... find your path. That, yeah. that who's Find your, your path and be steady. That who's your daddy yeah. statement really sums it all up in a real colloquial way. Um, let me. Yeah. Ter- Terrence joined us a second ago, and my my thought, and he's been sitting there for a few minutes, and my thought with Terrence is he's a commercial truck driver. And, and on our conversations where we touched on unions, Terrence, are you a member of a union down there? Welcome, by the way. Uh, thank you, Teamsters, yes. Okay. Did you have any thoughts on that that part of our conversation today, being a member of that group? Uh, yeah, I, I think it was Brent that said uh, it was more of a labor, and uh, I'm opposed to uh, government agencies being unionized. Yes, uh, they are bound by uh, constitution, I believe, and uh, and their contracts seem to uh, uh, be in conflict with it. Okay. Just wondered if you had a poll. Hey, did you have something on your mind that stimulated your call? You usually do. Yes. I, I wanted to uh, uh, make a special request to all the uh, callers to uh, mute out when you're not uh, uh, talking because it, it uh, overlaps, noise overlaps, and uh, do not use a speakerphone. Um, and I wanted to ask Brent, because we had this, uh, this, this term uh, a few days ago, uh, the term emancipation. Oh, good. And I wanted to get I wanted to get Brent's thoughts on the term emancipation and the, the several things it means or can do. Well, the thing I remember about emancipation, the t- definition of it is that it uh, has to do with a person's hand, like manifestation. It means to take your hands and make things obvious, hold something out to people, uh, manifest. Well, that's something you hand over. Uh, were you going to say something? I was, and I'd hate to interrupt you because it was directed at you, but John used to say in those seminars, because we covered it, that the base word of a, of emancipation was manumet. Uh-huh. I had never heard the word before at that point. Uh-huh. Well, emancipate is kind of the root. We look at it that way, and it has to do with uh, transferring property and came to mean handing over of a slave. Setting, then it came to mean setting free. It's one of those words that has a history of uh, applications, but it means to set free, emancipate. I don't try to use the word a lot just because it's a big, long, laborious uh, Latin word. And the word freedom or set free, excuse me, seems to be easier to grasp, and that's what it means, to set free. To set free, an emancipated child is a child that's set free from the authority of parents. And free from slavery, of course, and emancipation. So uh, that's what I remember about the word. It has to do with setting free. Now, uh, it can be used in any context. Like all words, it's context neutral. In other words, it will, it will stress the, the shade of meaning of, its, of, its, of what it communicates, the concept it communicates. It will stress the shade of meaning that the context gives to it. But it always has the same, fun, same fundamental Meaning, that's what I understand about it. What do you understand about it, uh, Terrence? Well, my understanding of it is that it's uh, nothing more than the transfer of a deed or a title or a, a holder in due course. Uh, 
where they uh, freed slaves because they were a property on a piece of paper, a sales receipt. Uh-huh. The receipt was just transferred to the new holder or new owner, which would be the United States. So they weren't necessarily set free. They just had a different place to reside. Well, reside. now, yeah. Well, now, I, I, I think I've heard that use. But here's what I, I'm just pulling it up here on a dictionary. I have a good dictionary on my computer. And if you've got a dictionary on your computer that uh, goes to the fundamental root of the word and what tongue it's from, use it. It'll bring a whole new light to your life. But uh, let me tell you what my dictionary says, and it's a good one. It says uh, it's from the 17th century, the way it's used today. It's a Latin word, emancipate, which means to transfer as property, which would go along with what you said. It's from a verb, ex is the preposition prefixed to it, which means out of, like we say exit, that means to go out from inside of, not out from the edge of, but out from the inside of, ex, and uh Mancipium, that's what it says, which means slave. That's what it says. So it means to go out of slavery, fundamentally. That's what this dictionary says. And uh, these fellows are pretty good, and I found some mistakes that where I'd happen to know something different, but pretty much it's, uh, it says, uh, uh, Thesaurus says to free, to liberate, to set free, to release, to deliver, to discharge, to unchain, to unfetter, to unshackle, to untie, unyoke. Well, if you were to disenthrall. I like that one. Uh, that's an old Anglo word. But if you were uh, emancipated from a contract or a, a liability or a mortgage, that would fit with the kind of thing. Or if you were emancipated from uh, ownership of something that's bad, there's something that, oh, uh, a, a duty that you have. That, and that seems to be what you're stressing. Is that right, Terrence? Well, I'm, uh, what I'm stressing is that the, uh, the slaves weren't set free. They just had a new owner or uh-huh. holder or, or place to reside because they could not, they would not allow them to be a state citizen where they could have a domicile and a place to be. So they just give them a, a residence in a place they have no stake or no ownership uh, called the United uh-huh. States. And, and therefore they were never really Wasn't- free. Um, wasn't the Emancipation Proclamation only for slaves in the North? You know, Roger, you make a point. I remember the South. Yeah, it was only for ones in the South. It probably didn't cover the ones in the North. Is that okay, what you're saying? Right, maybe they I did. just it got dialectic. Yeah. They, they didn't free the – Abraham Lincoln's uh, – I'm, I'm jumping in here, sorry. Uh, okay. Abraham Lincoln's uh, emancipation. Emancipation Proclamation was so hypocritical in in that it only freed the ones of the southern uh, seven southern states. Uh, those those that were in bondage uh, were left in bondage uh, or retainment uh, in in the northern states. This is you know complete hypocrisy and uh, <clears throat> part of the absurdities that isn't brought out. Uh, the, the the word that we're parsing over here, Brent, uh, the two words are emancipation and manumission. Yes. And M A N U M I S S I O N. Well, when you when you read them, they appear to be. Uh, most people would read it and interpret them as being synonymous. Uh, but as we all know, the devil's in the details. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and 
and and the application uh, since they've made such a big uh, falderall of of this word emancipation, then you look at its application and effect. And uh, I have understood it uh, was just by definitions an application, and of course with some other reading that uh, I would uh, probably. Concur with uh, Terence's uh, interpretation as it's been applied. So, uh-huh. well, you make a point too that uh, the Emancipation Proclamation only applied to slaves in the states that the North said were in rebellion. I believe there were seven or ten. You said seven, whatever it was. Those it did not apply to Kentucky, Missouri, and probably Tennessee. No, well. Maryland and Delaware didn't apply to those either. So it only applied. And it did, as you said, it's just the government making a statement that did absolutely nothing. Did nothing. Didn't change anything. Why? Because there was no power to change it. And who would be foolish enough to argue that the Emancipation Proclamation um, uh, didn't sleep for 100 years? It slept for 100 years. Nothing was done. It was just a statement to say this is what we're fighting for because they were losing heart. The policy of the South as was taught to the men that, that ran the Southern military machine. Uh, they had taught in the in their academies, West Point, the Virginia Military Institute, that if you don't have enough manpower and material to overcome the enemy, uh, wear him down with excessive bloodshed. That's what they were doing, and that's what they said they would do, and that's what Lee and Stonewall Jackson said they were trying to do. That's not a mystery. They were trying to wear the North down, and discourage them with massive bloodshed. When they went into battle, battle <laughs> they were vicious. And they told their men, be vicious. Kill as many as you can, as fast as you can. Because they knew they didn't have enough tail to finish the war. Well, then by the 1863, what was the Emancipation Proclamation? It was, it was late in the war. I think it was, anyway, it was, let's see, yeah, 1863. And, uh... They needed something. The North needed something to fire people up because people didn't care. Shucks, let's let's get real. The people in the North ha- hated the Negro slave worse, than, a lot worse than the people in the South. They they hated him. They didn't want him up there where they were, and uh, they continued to hate him uh, even after for decades later. But uh, they were tired of the war. They were tired of the killing. They were tired of the dying. And they wanted to quit, and so this Emancipation Proclamation was inserted into the mix, and and they were told to say, this is what we're fighting for. You see, before 1863, they would have never said that. I had a a great-great-uncle. This is a family story of lore, because I never met Uncle Marion. He was brother to my granddad, Douglas. And uh, he would go to the 4th of July. Both of them served before. He would go to the 4th of July uh, celebrations, and they would ask him to meet, to speak. Uh, usually, and there was a large monument in the in the graveyard in, in our little town uh, to the men that fought in the war. It's since fallen down. That was back when I was growing up. It was still there, but they'd ask him to speak, and and they'd talk about uh, ending slavery, and he'd stand up and say, "Well, two points. <laughs> the two points of of uh, my war service are this: number one, I didn't help win the war, like this man just said." My, my the, the MC said I helped with I didn't help. He said Navy beans is what won the war. We had plenty of Navy beans to eat, and they didn't have any. They were starving. That's one reason why we won the war. And the second thing is I didn't fight one day to free the slaves. 
I fought to save the Union because that's what the men in the North really hung on to was the saving of the Union. That's the way the war started. Save the Union. Lincoln said, save the Union. So they caught on to that. And they said, save the Union. But then in the middle of the war, they shifted gears and changed horses in the middle of the stream, as it were. And they said, no, 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 we're fighting to free the slaves. And then that song came out, a ridiculously uh, faulty theological song. Uh, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, etc. Well, that was all okay. But then ridiculous phrases like this. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea. Christ wasn't born in the beauty of lilies. Just the opposite. And then they start all this flowery, effeminate talk that... uh, but was supposed to get people all worked up. They knew if they could get the gals worked up, the wives, they could get the husbands worked up. And they would let go of more money and send their sons to, to slaughter more people. That's the madness of war, and that's what happened. And this whole emancipation proclamation did not accomplish, as uh, these fellows point out, didn't accomplish what, it was just political speak. It's like Bill Clinton say, I'm going to put 100,000 cops on the streets. Did he? No. But because he said it, people liked it, and they... They voted for him the next time around. That's the way that works. He did that with a lot of things. He said, I'm going to save the environment. I'm going to, I'm going to set aside national lands. And he had big prop, uh, press conferences. He never set them aside. They were just photo ops. That's what the Emancipation Proclamation was. And that's why lawyers say yet today and keep saying that with that deal in civil rights, that the Civil Rights Acts and the Emancipation Proclamation and the, what was that other, the 14th Amendment uh, were just window dressing. And those those things slept for a hundred years. They call them the dormant civil rights acts, the dormant 14th amendment dormant. That's a fancy Latin word that means asleep. They were asleep. That's what the, from my understanding, that's what it amounts to back to you, Rod. Oh, yeah. gee, I got a couple well, of things to say. Midnight basketball would be one of them. <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, dormant and sleeping in 14th Amendment. I keep hearing little excerpts and comments from people in some of the things I watch about Jim Crow these days and going back to Jim Crow. Daryl, are you shuffling around your shop there? No, no, I'm not. I'm quiet. Okay. I'm wondering where that's going. Uh, and uh, uh, that's coming to at least a little bit of conversation, but that interests me is the connotation when it's mentioned is always so negative, and, of course, they don't have an accurate viewpoint like we do here. We've had a couple of folks join us. Terrence is, I mean, not Terrence, Samuel's been there for a minute, and Bob just jumped on, probably on the emancipation thing. Samuel, what you got on your mind today, bro? Yeah, I, uh, uh, I'm hearing that uh, the state of Alabama is eliminating the uh, the standard marriage license that they've used for forever. Uh, their probate judges, I guess, used to issue them. And when the Supreme Court passed the uh, same-sex marriage thing, a lot of the probate judges refused to sign them anymore. So they got some kind of bill going through where uh, I think the... From what I can tell, the couple that wants to be married, it just supplies an affidavit to show that they're competent and of proper age, etc. And that's it, I guess. Uh, then they uh, file that, and I guess the probate judge then puts it into the record or something. More tears. familiar with this? More tears. More tears. More tears. That Daryl was referring to. 
all this gay marriage stuff of sodom no let's not let's not give it that benefit sodomite marriage they're not gay they're not happy their life expectancies are lower they're generally miserable people they're not gay they're sodomites Doesn't that what, what, the competency? Yeah. <laughs> like good Alabama. point, Bob. Good point. It sounds you... like Alabama is eliminating it, though, isn't it? it yes. My point is, what is actually happening in law here? What, what uh, in law is actually happening? I, 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 I'm not sure. I think I saw the story. I believe that's been happening for a little bit of time, hasn't it, Daryl? This isn't something that's just popping up, right? Are you familiar with it? Yeah, they. Yeah, they. They. Uh, they stopped uh, issuing marriage licenses uh, about, I think it was about two years ago, and it was a direct result of the uh, protest of the uh, the uh, lower magistrate up in uh, Tennessee or Kentucky, the woman that refused to uh, the recorder. Uh, she wouldn't she wouldn't record the uh, the marriage licenses and. Uh, uh, Alabama stepped up and said, "Well, listen, we're we're just going to stop issuing marriage licenses. Period. There you go." And uh, uh, so, uh, it, you, you see different glimmers here in the state of uh, Bamalama, where uh, you, you see glimpses of, you know, uh, what I would consider uh, proper intent, uh, and. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, you know, this is this is part of the changing of words, uh, sodomy, into gay, which means that you're going to be happy to take it in the rear, and uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, listen, listen, this this falls directly into this term anti-Semitism, and uh, I have to I have to put this out here, you know. Uh, uh, Anti-Semitism will be completely eradicated and eliminated when the whole world has been subdued, subverted, and perverted into Judaism. That's when anti-Semitism will go away, and their great Mashiach will return. Okay, that's the goal. <laughs> okay, when, when everybody, when all, the, when all they're growing is tares, then then you will have no more anti-Semitism. And, and I guess we'll have to learn a no-hide law. Uh, Brent, how, how, man, that's going to be. Huh? Yeah. So, anyway. Bob? Well, somewhere. Yeah. Bob's yeah. always got something real cogent to add. How you doing today, bud? Bob, did you have a distraction or something? Well, he was with us a minute ago. Um, Samuel, did we address? Sorry, sorry. I had <laughs> I had my mute on. Okay. I was trying not to subject you guys to my environment, and then I just started talking when you addressed me, and it took me a second to figure out I wasn't talking to you. Um, hello, everybody. Brent, Roger, Darrell, others. There's a slew on I today. had, yeah, I had on the Fourth of this month, I took a screenshot of something I was reading on Zero Hedge, and for the life of me, I can't find the article, but it really doesn't matter. It was talking about uh, the definition of a foreign national in reference to 
Trump's supposed taking of, uh, you know, whatever, emoluments or benefits from foreign nationals, blah, 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 this whole Ukraine crap that we know is BS. And this article has B, foreign national, in, turn, in, in quotation marks, defined, and then it goes through one, two, and blah, 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 and it's talking about Title Eight, Section 1101-1101, Sub A, Sub 22. So I took a screenshot of it, and I didn't deal with it for a day or two, and then I finally here a few days ago, I got to it, and I had been, been intending to call in with this for some time, but it's just been busy and honestly hadn't heard the forepart of this show. So I just pretty much tuned in. And what I found interesting was, and I think this may go to the Samoans, et cetera, American Samoans, excuse me, and that definition of national as opposed to other nationals. Because in eight, Title Eight, eleven oh one. Parenthetical A21, it says the term national, lowercase national, the term national means person owing permanent allegiance to a state. Small s, small s. That's the first line of the the Nationality Act of 1940, that right there. Yeah, lowercase n for national, lowercase s for state. Okay, then parenthetical 22. The term national of the United States, lowercase n, but you capitalize United States, means A, a citizen of the United States, capitalized, or B, a person who, though not a citizen of the United States, owes permanent allegiance to the United States. Now, I'm assuming that would be American Samoans and others who are... Yes. U.S. nationals, but not nationals owing allegiance to a state. Is that valid? Correct. You know, it's one of those things that it, it, my when I was reading through that, and it suddenly, you know, you get this ding. Uh, you tell your kids and you tell your people that work for you, you, you keep trying to get them to understand something, and it never, I've never got the distinction. It's always been this mystery to me, I hear it, but I never can see, I never got it to where I could regurgitate it to understand it myself, much less tell anybody else. And when I read that the other day, after I actually looked it up, you know, and I think it was on Cornell uh, Law site, and they're pretty good, uh, it suddenly clicked. Well, it's see- actually... All right, Bob. In their definition, right. but it's separate. And a foreign, nat- let's say a foreign national of France, does he have any permanent allegiance to the United States? No. None any, whatsoever. Any other situation in the world except for those American Samoans down there who can't be citizens of the United States but still owe their allegiance. Right. Whereas the lowercase national, not national of the United States, the lowercase national is actually the state. considered as a U.S. citizen, but only as a secondary status, and it's not even noted, but they are, in fact, a state citizen. 
Well, when that when I saw that A in the Nationality Act in 1940, because of the training, really from John's teachings, honestly, I w- anybody else would go right over it; it wouldn't register. But that says it all right there today. Now, even more, uh, expand this just a little bit, Brent. I don't know if we've discussed this or not, but this is just something that, as we've said in the past, when you get enough knowledge underneath you, all of a sudden things are delivered to you. And it uh-huh. hit me one day that. In all the stuff, they always lay the hook in at the very front. The 14th Amendment, all persons born, there's the hook right there, you know, bringing in the feudal system. In this Nationality Act, when they hid the other status, bam, there's a, in the very first line is the, is the key line of definition A. That's the first thing or the definitions in that act, and that A that Bob just read out of the statutes is, is, is exactly the same verbiage. Uh, go back to Title 26 CFR, uh, the trick, boom, 1.1-1A. And there, I, there's other examples. Those are the three that come to mind right off my top of my head. But it seems to be an M.O. for anybody that is looking at this stuff in detail in the future. They always lay the hook in at the front, and then they fill in voluminous crap behind it that you think you're going to read through and find the answer when you already passed it. See, there's just more M.O. and tactics the way these guys use them, man. No, you're right. People talk a lot about, in the circles that listen to me and I talk to, they talk a lot about the difference between law and equity. And it's a mystery to people. It's a mystery to those that spend years trying to study, well, what is equity? Well, equity, you can say a lot of things about it. It's not like you can lay out a definition, but because it's an accident of history, again, and you, a page of history... And uh, is more valuable than uh, volumes of logic, as Holmes said. In that case, that's true. But equity, number one, it doesn't act against things. It acts against persons. Persons. And so at, at the beginning of that legislation you cited, two or three, you cited the hook, you said, they say this applies to these persons. It doesn't say we want your property. We need your money. We need your car. We need your whatever property you have that's a, a non-living thing. They identify you, and it acts against you, say, personally. That's the ugliness of the law of the city. The law of the city is a law that uh, seeks to control people's future behavior. It's not a a law that controls property. It, It gets what it wants, not by law, but by controlling people's future behavior. If, um, that's why it says, for example, the Civil Rights Act, 1983, it talks about person. The first definition you've got to tackle when you deal with that act is, well, what person is he talking about? Yep. What qualifies as a person? A corporation? Is that a person? No, not, not for purposes of this. Um, and the IRS laws are that way. Yep. They act against the person, uh, ultimately. And that's what the evil empire, the law of the city, the law of Babylon, the code of Justinian, that's the focus of, of those laws is to act against persons and not things. And it is to act against persons, to force persons to say what they want them to say, even to think what they want them to think. We have in our common law traditions some limits on that, some tools that we can use to stop it, such as in the Bill of Rights, the right to remain silent, the right the right, the responsibility to speak when you're supposed to speak, First Amendment, freedom of association, freedom of religion. You see, when the government says you can't do this, you can't do that, that acts against the person. And that's not what the federal government's there for. The federal government is a government that was established, and the great fear was, they didn't want it to have the police powers. 
The police powers are the powers that enable government to act against persons. Police powers are those things that govern health, education, and welfare. The states have the police powers. The the, the police powers, P-O-L-I-C-E, that's the old word for city. They have those under our constitutional arrangement of government in our own country. We've got this United States Constitution that applies to the federal government, the general government sitting in Washington, D.C., and then the police powers are the exclusive domain of the states. They can pass legislation. But with the IRS code, the police powers are applied to people within the states. When they come in and do a raid on your home and they force you to do this and that and the other, when they force you, this is uh, an enforced thing. When they say, sign this tax return, that's forcing you personally to take an oath. That's that's uh, been unlawful in America for a long time. You know, they used to, in the early days of our country, in the even before our country began, but when our first fathers lived here, they passed a statute that said at the end of, in some of the colonies, at the end of every year, you have to swear by signed uh, oath, uh, by signed statement, uh, how many, uh, how many, best way to say it is, how much liquor you consumed during that year, and you would be taxed accordingly. If you were to keep track, keep your own books and records, <laughs> how many quarts and pints you drank or how many drams and then at the end of the year or how many flagons of wine and at the end of the year you were taxed on it but you were forced to swear to that statement well that became a big deal and people rebelled against that why because it's a forced oath forced at the penalty of the law if you don't take the oath then you're going to be in trouble there's some kind of a criminal liability attached uh, back during the days when the fifth amendment the right to remain silent always part of our common law, but it came forefront and center in the English-speaking world during the days of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in England, and the Romish priests were dragging folk in to their, what they called the High Commission Court, the prerogative court of the, of the crown, and they were saying, okay, we're going to put you under oath, but I don't want to be under oath. No, we're going to put you under oath. Either uh, we're going we're gonna to attach uh, screws uh, under your fingernails and your toes, or we're going to put you on the Duke of Exeter's daughter, and we're going we're gonna to stretch you out a little bit and see if you will comply with our request to take this oath. And then they force the oath, and then they start asking questions. Then, if you don't answer the questions or answer them wrongly, then they, they'll get you for the crime of perjury, which is not, by the way, lying under oath. <laughs> But, but perjury, we've been through this before, that's a, a misnomer that men have uh, perverted for a long, long time in our English-speaking world. The Bible makes the distinction, and so have our courts even made the distinction as to what perjury is. But they used to do that, and the, the Romish priest would define it wrongly, and, and they would uh, get force people to take an oath and then, and then uh, prosecute them for making false statements under oath which is uh, they could uh, give greater punishment for that. Well, that's what uh, the tax return is. That's what a lot of things are in our culture. And it is seeing the difference. The kingdom of God says, uh, Jesus Christ, you can't even see it unless you're born from above. Well, that stands to reason. You don't have eyes to see. You're dead. You're deader than a ring bolt, stiffer than a hammerhead. You You can't see anything. You can't know anything. You can't hear anything as a matter of hearing what, your maker has to say, you may read the words, but you may hear them, but they go in one ear and out the other, as we used to say. So what we've got is a situation in America where the law of the city is coming at us through the most nefarious forms, such as the police powers coming through uh, the government and making sure that we do not balk 
were boondoggled, were, were pressed into believing that a false oath is lawful. It isn't. Never has been to force a man. And when you think about it, just as a matter of our common senses, we would say, well, wait a minute. This ain't right. If I want to take an oath, Jesus Christ said this, do not swear broadly. Do not swear generally. And uh, the whole idea is I'm the master. I am the master of my oath. I'll swear to what I want to swear to. I, if you want me get me up and say, well, swear to everything. Well, every, every transaction you ever made, that's what they did in Egypt. Read it. Go to the book of Genesis. See the scheme that Joseph laid out there for, his, uh, for, this, for the country of Egypt. They were to return every, make a return of information, an information return of every financial transaction that they were involved in. Make it to the government every year. And they promised the Jewish people, the Jewish, no, that's the wrong word, the Israelites. The he, yeah, the, well, the Israelites is all right, too. The Israelites promised, oh, yeah, yeah, look, we're starving. If you'll give us what we want, we'll sell our bodies to you and we'll make a financial return. That's exactly what it says. <laughs> and we go, we, and we go having the Bible right in front of us, and we say, oh, yeah, that's all right. We'll do the same thing. We'll tell Big Brother. And we're hey, never. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go we're ahead, never to go back to the bondage of Egypt. Yeah. But that's we do correct. it all the time. Yep. So, and we, so uh, Brent, yeah. would, it be, would, would it be appropriate to say that as a matter of fact that the police powers deal with policy. Yes. I mean, oh, yeah, literally the, yeah, I agree. The Roger, Roger agrees too, apparently. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's what the administrative state is. I equate it to public policy. You didn't policy. have public policy before yeah. you had administrative agencies because you had real law back then. If you, I've seen so pictures. Title 8, what's, what's Title 8 under? I don't know the answer Well, Title Eight is a section of the code, and then every one of the sections has its own section of Code of Federal Regulations underneath it. And what they do is they take the laws as they're posted into the U.S. Code, and then the agencies interpret them. And that interpretation through the vehicle of regulations is now called public policy because it's not law anymore. Well, Title Eight. I, so didn't I guess look it what up, I'm Roger. asking, Roger. I guess what I'm asking is, you, you, is Title Eight. Yeah. Is that substantive law, or is, am I asking well, the wrong question? Well, you need to look at the front of it and see if Title Eight is registered as positive law or non-positive law. From what you just read me, my sense is it's positive law because they took the exact verbatim quote out of the statutes at large and the Nationality Act of 1940 and brought it over to the code. The way I understand it, that's usually the criteria on whether it's called positive law or non-positive law. Well, what they say is positive law and what isn't shouldn't matter to us because they're liars. Right. And that's that's the part, parcel <laughs> legislation. Positive law is is a statement, a command, an imperative. Uh, do this, don't do that, and that's what legislation is by definition. It's the command of the sovereign. That's what legislation is in every case. All statutes, Title Eight. I'm just looking here. I realize what that is now, Roger. You talk about Title Eight has to do with aliens and nationality. That's yeah, immigration and stuff. I thought. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But uh, but it, it certainly is positive law in this sense. It it attempts to command people. But this is the way it's going to be. 
And uh, as Blackstone would have put it, uh, positive law is a way that the government can act like they're changing truth and reality by the stroke of a pen. Of course, that's not possible. But legislatures and uh, and executive officers and uh, judges try to do that a lot. Uh, that's not uh, commendable at all, at all, to, to be in, to say oh, I'm innovative. I've oh man, I've really cut through the. No, you haven't. You've just created more confusion. Every time, I'm not the first one to say this, every time legislation is passed, every time, it creates more judicial confusion than it yes. than it uh, gets rid of. Every yes. time. Now, if the judges and the juries are in charge of, of the changes in the law by accretions, case by case, which is the only way justice can possibly occur is person by person, case by case, then our law, that's the, that's the hallmark of our common law. We follow the wisdom of the past of juries and judges are both combined together. And the independence of the judiciary, this is another fallacy I see, patriot groups. And it's been true for, for decades, even centuries. People in England used to complain about the judges. But the judges are a separate power from the legislative and the executive branch. That's why they look to their former decisions for guidance. If they have to look to the executive for guidance, we'd be in a lot worse shape. If they had to look to the legislature to say, well, here's what we'll do. Well, <laughs> oh God. legislation, if you could imagine 450 men, 300 men, 200 men, and then, then add to the mix women no. and take all those individual wills, combine them into one and uh, express it as legislation, that's the confusion. That would, that, and it does create massive confusion. Because everybody gets to have their little deal in there, and so there's nothing but overlap and contradiction. And that's the way it's been since the beginning with legislation and executive decree decrees. Those are all positive law. Why that word positive is used, I don't know. The, the thing, I, I think the reason it's used is because positive has to do with the position of a thing. And positive law takes a position. It repositions established law. That's usually what happens. And so when Blackstone says, uh, and Justice Mansfield says, talks about positive law, they're not talking about the accretions and the calculus of law that comes slowly and sure-footedly through juries and courts. Back to you, Roger. No, they're talking about the way it's brought over from the statutes at large, which yeah. are supposedly constitutional and the organic laws of the country over into the Roman Civil Code, we now call the United States Code, and whether it's brought over in whole or only in part. That's the way I understand it. And, boy, it confused me in the early days of this because we were looking for answers like that, you know. What do you mean? Non what do you mean? Title Twenty Six is non-positive law. Well, the reason Title Twenty Six is non-positive law is because it was never in the statutes at large. Po Title Twenty Six was passed as a as a law and only voted on by the House of Representatives because it only applies to D.C. Yeah, but I uh, have an Go ahead. Go ahead. Chris? Go ahead. Chris, go ahead. Well, I appreciate Brent's views on the judiciary and its purported independence or not being dependent on other branches. However, unfortunately, as we were talking earlier about unions being mobs, the mob of the bar union has assimilated and muddied the waters 
and given the illusion that they're separated powers when in fact they're all part of the same bar club, uh, perhaps with the exception of a common lawyer like Grant or a pro bono private advocate for honest government like myself who has no affiliation with their bar, therefore we're on the outside and suffer retribution and vindication, uh, vindictive retaliation by their bar members trying to enforce their bar rules, which are private association rules, private policy posed as public law has no basis in reality whatsoever. And so, therefore, there is no true independence of the judiciary. It's dependent completely on the bar and perpetuating their own self-interest through creating kerfuffles and confusion on all these legislation that's put out by their bar members guised as public servants and representatives. And, therefore, they perpetuate their own self-interest by creating confusion so they can profit ad infinitum egregiously and rape, plunder, and rip off the people left and right because they won't rule completely on a decision. They leave it all so they can re-litigate it into infinity. Very, so that's su- still, very succinctly that's still, said. That's still separation of hey, Roger. members of the bar. Let me just say this and I'll get off quick. I'm not the member of any bar and I have never been the member of any bar. And there are a lot of states where bar membership has nothing to do with the practice of law. It's not required and I don't do it. But in California, it is. I don't know about Nevada. But bar membership in those states where it does, um, lawyers are court officers. They're part of the judicial branch. So they, when 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 there is a, a bar association, for example, in California, uh, have authority to discipline all lawyers and judges. Uh, in other states where bar membership is not required, uh, the highest court of that jurisdiction has all authority. The Supreme Court of the state of Illinois, for instance, has all authority, or Indiana, or wherever it is. But um, uh, it, we're in states where the bar association controls all of those uh, folk that are lawyers. And by the way, you don't have to be a lawyer to be a member of the bar. Anybody can join the bar association. They just want your money, and they want to, then you can get the insurance benefits and the whatever else you want. It's, it's not that much of a closed organization. Are they powerful? Yes. Have they gone the wrong way? Yes, they have. Um, but that still, it comes back to the idea – you need that separation of powers. They don't have that in the rest of the world. And officers of the court, which are lawyers, in those states where the Bar Association has that control of lawyers, you've got to belong to the bar. You can't practice law. And those are the folks that are part of the judicial branch, and that influence is powerful. That's exactly right. But it uh, should be confined to the judicial branch. One of the problems we have is that lawyers become also part of the executive branch. But um, Somebody, Bob or somebody, was going to say something. He was, but let me just ask you before I turn it to Bob's question. Now, for my curiosity, do you know the states, the ratio, like Brent, of the ones that are outside of California totally require bar membership to practice? No, but I will. I'll look here while somebody else is talking. I (laughs) haven't been involved in other states, so I I just know because I ended up doing cases in those places and found out. But go ahead, somebody yeah, else. Bob, to well, Bob, was, had a, you, uh, let, let's get Bob. He was there a second ago, and, and I want to leave him hanging. Bob, your comment? Well, I've heard Brent say this, I believe, and I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, but speaking to what Chris was just mentioning about the ju- uh, judges, how can you expect to have an impartial judge when he's being paid by the behemoth that you're fighting? That's just ludicrous on its face. Where do you go to get away from that? I don't know, but there's no way you can construe well, that as impartiality when his paycheck 
uh, is being signed by the very people that we're trying to get away from. Well, Bob, okay, it's even complicated. Now, it's even more complicated by the fact that most of the people they're choosing to be judges are coming out of government employment, not out of the private sector. to start with. Yeah, not just that yeah. they're being paid, but they have been indoctrinated. And their whole being has been predicated on sucking up the government. And then Brent was talking about the mess of legislation. And I was watching a video just last night by Peter Schweitzer. I believe he was speaking to the Heritage Foundation. Doesn't really matter. The point is what he was saying. And he was talking about this revolving door of cronyism in Washington, D.C. And he said... uh, you know, the general public, uh, just a little anecdote, the general public uh, is struggling, right? I mean, we're, we're in a recession, depression, whatever. It, it's not pretty. And he was speaking to a Ferrari dealership in metropolitan Washington or near that general environment. And how's business, he says, uh, salesman says, all oh, business is great. Business is great. We're selling cars. And he said, but there's a problem. Corporate corporate really doesn't like us. And he said, well, how can that be? He said, well, it's really simple. He said, if if a Ferrari gets sold in Miami, they finance it. If, it. if it gets sold in Beverly Hills, they finance it. These Ferraris, they're paying cash. Yep. And corporate doesn't like it. Yep. And I thought to myself, well, that speaks volumes. I've heard uh, that. I, I heard that before, Bob. I heard somebody else comment on that, that a while back. Out of the 10 most, I don't know how they were grading it, what their metric was, but the 10 most affluent zip codes in the United States, for whatever that means, seven of them were in metro area, you know, Baltimore, D.C., whatever, in that general federal territory, so to speak. And what he brought forward was, in this crony capitalism, so to speak, uh, the complexity of legislation. He said, you look at something that was brought out 20 or 30 years ago, and now we've got the new and improved version. You might have had 300 pages in the original, and now that they've upgraded it, it's not 300, it's not 3,000, it's 13 to two twenty thousand pages yep. pages yep. Yep. of legalese and garbage and he said now don't think this is accidental he said here's the scam and he had numbers to back it up i won't try to cite them but he said what happens is a they the legislators know what they wrote and they hire on then as guess what analysts to figure out how to comply with the very crap that they wrote two years earlier when they come out of office. And if they don't, their brother, their nephew, their whoever, close family members are doing this. And it's just a scam on the highest order because they're subverting. I mean, whether it's even necessary isn't even the point. It's there, but we don't know what to do with it. We let's, you know, corporate America, whoever, company A. 
So they hire somebody, and guess who this somebody is? It's a close friend, relative, whatever, of the people who wrote the legislation in such an obscure and obfuscating manner that nobody can possibly understand it. It's just, it just makes you want to chew nails. Well, you know, Bob, I remember a statement uh, Glenn dug up in all of his tax research that was back in the 40s, I think, Brent. I I wish I could lay my hands on it. I'm going to have to try and regurgitate it from memory, and I can't very much, but the bench line. And I can't remember who the guy was, but he's a real famous senator. He was going to, they wanted him to run for president, and he walked away from the Senate, and they voted him back, and and, and, uh, it was around the time of Truman. And he was very nationally noted. And he was on the Ways and Means Committee. I guess the Senate had a Ways and Means Committee back then. And uh, he said every year we come up with a way to try and simplify the tax code. And we send all of our suggestions to the Treasury Department. And what they send us back, King Solomon and all the wise men (laughs) couldn't interpret (laughs) King That's Solomon right. and all of his wise men. <laughs> Again, it's an attempt to control the future, and God forbids that. He forbids it. The, the Bible, the, the Christian life is all about God controlling the future and our acknowledgement of his sovereignty and our acknowledgement that we don't know the future. That's why crystal balls and tarot cards and tea leaves, all those things the Bible says are an abomination. We are to trust him for the future and look to his law to know what will happen next. Because his law says, if you do this, you get blessing. You do this, you get cursing. And you can know. And the prophets of the Bible, all 17 of them, say that. They say, well, we'd read the law, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Lamentation, well, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. They read the law of of Moses. And they said, well, it says here, the law of Moses, if you look about you and you see this, you get this. Hey, friends, I'm looking around, and it doesn't look like we're going to get the thing you really want. It's going to come. Hell is coming. That's what the law of God is all about. Uh, Daryl, were you going to say something? I thought I heard your voice. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I didn't know I was so obvious. Thanks, Brent. Uh, I, I just wanted to uh, add in with what Bob and Chris were saying. Uh, the uh, I, I, I have to, it works for me. I, I, I imagine it works for other people uh, when things are put into uh, proper context. So uh, as I identify uh, uh, bar attorneys, uh, I see them as part of a guild, not really a union per se, but a guild. And in this guild, every guild has rights. Uh, They have uh, rights not meaning as in uh, benefits, they have uh, procedures. Uh, rituals, as in rites. Um, and uh, so they're affecting their rights. And uh, I, I guess you would know much more about this in, in real life than uh, I am, Brent. But I, I imagine you've observed these rites. Uh, and I have to go back to a question that I heard uh, I got from my good friend, uh, our good friend, Tommy Schramm. He's in front of a lady judge, and he's sort of backing her into a corner, and he says, well, 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 judge, your your honor, I have a question for you. And 
and his question was, are you a impartial trier of the facts or a party to the action, your honor? Yep. Well, uh, listen, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, Chris kind of took the long way around Harvey's bar, but, uh, it would, it, it appears to me that they're a party to the action, uh, which kind of fits in with what Bob was saying is that, well, uh, it's preposterous that you're impartial. <clears throat> and, um, so, uh, I just had one other thing I wanted to throw out here, and I, I'm sorry because it's a little disjointed, but it kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Brent, with uh, the Constitution and, and uh, the, some of these other things. And uh, the, the, uh, the, the covenant and contract prior to the Constitution of... Uh, uh, was they call it the Articles of Confederation? Uh, okay, so we've all heard this, right? Well, uh, I'm not. I'm not sure or where if 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 any of you have heard the the full name of that that document because it's it's kind of misleading. It's been left out. Go figure that they they would alter alter history. Well, the full the full title of that that uh, contract covenant was called uh, <clears throat> the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union Between the States. And uh, the the Perpetual Union Between the States has been left off. Well, okay. sure has. Well, this is kind of a big this is kind of a big deal. Now, the the Articles of Confederation were, were never uh, repealed. No, Daryl, okay. you read. Could you could could you yeah. dial up that oath and and read it while Brent's on the air that you read to us the other day from Delaware? This was a real good bit of uh, uh, historical investigation. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Yeah, I I can. Uh, thank you, Roger. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I was uh, I was thinking about that when I was reading that, and that if I got the opportunity, I was going to read that too. Uh, Brent would love this. <laughs> okay, it's pretty good. I have, it, Brent. I have it right here. I have it right here in my hot little hand, uh, Brent. I have to I, here again. I have to set the stage in the in the timeline sort of context and and here it is is that this these states that refer to in the perpetual union had um prior to the constitutional convention uh had oaths that they had to take uh for the people that were uh serving as as in offices okay and uh here is a a um, an oath of that foresaid Articles of Confederation of the Perpetual Union of States, and this particular uh, one is from the state of Delaware. It's called Delaware State, not the state of Delaware. And this is pre-Constitution. Uh, it says. 
every person who shall be chosen a member of either house or appointed to any office or place of trust before taking his seat or entering upon the execution of his office shall take the following oath or affirmation. If conscientiously scrupulous of taking an oath to wit, I will bear true allegiance to the Delaware state, submit to its constitution and laws, and do no act wittingly whereby the freedom thereof may be prejudiced, and also make and subscribe the following declaration to wit. I do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, his, son, his only Son, and in the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forevermore, and I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration, and all officers shall also take an oath of office. Uh, the, uh, you can go on down through uh, any number of these states, which I have a list of here. They all pretty much uh, cover the same points, and uh, there was a, um, in, in the states of the Perpetual Union, there was a, a uh, oath and a test and an affirmation uh, that acknowledged uh, the Trinity. Now, this, this is a big deal, and this is another reason why uh, guys like uh, uh, George Washington and Adams and Hamilton and Madison had to deep six the Articles of Confederation. Oh, that's kind of a mouthful. So I, I, I want to hear your response, Brad. Yeah, I want. Well, to number that. one, had you ever heard yeah. that before? You ever seen that before? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And a lot of the the, the colonies and states after that have similar statements. But number one, the Constitution of the United States. Um, the whole idea was that they would leave their hands off of what the states did. Nine of the states had uh, established taxpayer-supported religious points of view. For example, in Virginia, it was Anglican. And, of course, up in New England, it was Congregationalist, more Puritanical, less high church. But nine of the 13, and the Constitution would have never been put in place if the federal government, or the general government, I should say, uh, were given powers to interfere in any way or even say anything about it. You see, Cong the Congress of the United States, according to the First Amendment, has absolutely no jurisdiction to say anything about religion. That's what the First Amendment says, but yet they do. But they shall not say anything. Uh, the government of the United States has no jurisdiction in matters of family, religion. Why? Because they don't have the police powers. To say that a particular, in the state, under the Constitution, the way it was written, each of our 50 states would have the power to say, this is the state religion in Indiana, Michigan, Colorado. And uh, that was the whole idea, that they wouldn't say anything about it. But another thing that we could bring up is, um, maybe you've heard, talking about oaths, you've heard of, uh, there was a popular book, still popular, written back in the 19th century by a Presbyterian clergyman named E.M. Bounds, E.M. Bounds. Well, he was a Presbyterian preacher in Missouri during the war between the northern and the southern tiers of the states. And uh, the Union soldiers, of course, came into that hotbed of violence, Missouri, Kansas, the whole thing. And uh, they went around and gathered up all the preachers they could find and said, uh, you've got to take an oath swearing allegiance to the United States. And they said, what are you talking about? 
I, I live in Missouri. I, there's no requirement that I take an oath, allegiance to the uh, allegiance to the United States, and they wouldn't take it. So they would either tie them to a post or sh- and shoot them, which happened, or beat them, or they would imprison them for the duration of the war, which they did to E.M. Bounds. They imprisoned him for the in a prison camp under horrendous conditions for the duration of the war. Why? Because he knew in his heart of hearts that a forced oath was unlawful. Second, though, third, maybe third point is oaths do not bind anyone to a duty they did not already have. The oath, if it's properly taken and understood and, and positioned, it doesn't bind you to any additional duty. Uh, everybody in the United States has a duty of allegiance a duty of loyalty to their country, period. All the oath does is it additionally binds you and makes it more obvious and is is designed to excite a recognition of that binding. When Trump took the oath, put his hand on the Bible, he he already had a duty to be loyal to the United States, just as do I or you. So the, the oath doesn't create any new duty. And if it does, it's not properly understood or positioned or used. Uh, even in marriage, the vows uh, directly to God, the promises to God, those don't bind a uh, man or a woman to any new duty. It's obvious that God puts together people in marriage, as the Bible says, what God has put together, let no man tear apart. There's another example. But on and on we go. It's not a new duty. So the Articles of Confederation, by the way, yeah, I, I agree. They say perpetual union, and that throws a monkey wrench into a lot of people's ideas. But these states swore, we're, we're swearing to each other for perpetuity. We know we need this. And the Articles of Confederation are got, not going to be repealed. And as you say, they haven't been repealed. But anything contrary to the Constitution of the United States, I would predict a court would say that part has been replaced. That's what they would say. And that stands to reason of interpretation of legislation under our common law tradition of interpretation of legislation. Well, those are just some ideas that popped in my head. One other thing, and this is important, and it, uh, Bob made mention of this, and we all, if we're sensible, we have to agree, uh, judges get their paycheck from the, well, somebody says, look at a federal judge's paycheck. What does it say at the top? It says Treasury of the United States. Well, where is their loyalty going to be? Well, who's buttering their bread? As uh, Billy Budd said, I have eaten the king's bread, therefore I'm loyal to the king. Well, a federal judge eats the bread of the government, of the general government of the United States. His loyalty is foregone. Justice Scalia makes that point on several occasions. He said uh, one case back in 2006 that if there is no jury, then the accused stands, uh, there's nothing between the accused and a lone employee of the state. That's a judge. That's his, that was his point. Yeah. That's why we have jury, because judges have to be prejudiced. And we're mortals, we're weak, we're dependent, as Blackstone tells us. And as we know from experience, and as the Bible reveals to us, we're dependent. We're woefully wound up and bound up in our own whims and difficulties, every one of us. And we are incurably biased and prejudiced. So you're gonna, that's why we have juries, by the way. That is an institution God has given us to overcome the prejudice of a lone employee of the state. Well, that being true, is there a, a conflict? Yes, there's a conflict. What are we going to do about it? Well, that's why we impanel juries. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6 to impanel the jury. Why aren't we impaneling juries? Why are we giving to federal judges, for instance, entire cognizance over religious liberty cases, over freedom of speech cases? I mean, if there's, any, if there's ever a place where we don't apply the jury these days, it's in those places. Why? Yeah. Why, why do we? Yeah, that, that, the jury is there as God's institution of 12. Back to... Darryl or well, Brent, Brent, I, I agree with you uh, absolutely. Uh, 
and uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to throw a zinger out here. Okay, I, I agree with you absolutely. Uh, and they have cognizance, so they can receive their recognizance. <laughs> and uh, the the other thing I wanted to point out about allegiance and this oath and the United States uh, citizen having full allegiance to the United States, I agree with. If you are that citizen Correct. and that person, uh, I would <clears throat> also. Uh, with my other foot, stand firmly on the ground that this is rebuttable. Well, the, the loyalty that I see that God wants us to have is not to any government. It is to our land. Our loyalty, says the covenant of God, this covenant of God, the trust settlement of God from the very beginning, is to our land. And we used to understand that, and it came out in our, in our speech and in our poetry, the, the land I love, stand beside her and guide her. Well, that was written from the viewpoint of America from an earlier day when we saw that our loyalty is not to men. If you're loyal to men, you're going to be deeply disappointed. Now, I'm loyal to my friends. I'm loyal to my wife. But I recognize in that loyalty, at what point am I going to say I'm going to retain loyalty with this person no matter what? Well, there are those people in my life, my parents, for example, my loyalty is to them no matter what. I don't care how, how crazy they go off the rails. My loyalty still has to be to their, wel their welfare by the law of God. And my loyalty to my land by the law of God is non-negotiable, and he commands that it's unchangeable. And my loyalty to his law is unnegotiable and unchangeable. That's what he tells me he wants. Those are loyalties that are not allowed to be changed without horrible consequences. But loyalty to governments, institutions of men, priesthoods, uh, all that, that's what we say in America. We are a government of law. What is law? The will of the sovereign. Who is the sovereign? There's only one true lawgiver, says James, the apostle. We are um, a government of law and not a government of men. Men, like me, you mean I'm supposed to be loyal unconditionally to men, only to those that God commands Everybody else, once they go off the rails, I may not have a responsibility to be loyal to them, depending upon the circumstances. There are what we call in our law fiduciary relationships. Fiduciary, those are loyalty even to my hurt. Jesus Christ, the Bible says that he kept his promise even to his hurt. That is non-negotiable loyalty. He promised it to his brethren, his people, that's us, and he did it to the point of brutal torture and death of the worst kind that we will never experience and never indeed could experience to the point of being separated from the beatific vision and the connection he had as a member of the Trinity. Amazingly, how does that happen? I don't know. That's a mystery. Tis mystery, says John Wesley. All the immortal dies. Who can explore this strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to plumb the depths of love divine. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He was just saying, I don't, I don't get this, but I know it's a fact because the history recorded is on good evidence reveals it. That's what Paul the Apostle, the point he makes in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But that's, that's uh, the idea. There's loyalty and then there's trust. Those are two distinct things, and that would bear talking about too. But uh, I, not to disagree with what you said, uh, uh, Daryl, and I get what you're saying. 
we are not to be loyal to a government of men, institutions, or even laws that are contrary to the supreme law of God. I think that's what you're saying. I've, well, I've been convinced of that, and I, I agree. E Go ahead. Even the, even the military says you're not supposed to obey an immoral order. Uh, let me welcome here before we end real quick. Uh, your your recent good friend Chuck has joined us. Chuck, you still there? I'm here. There he is. I'm here. A little distorted. It'll maybe it'll settle out. Well, tell us all about your experience with getting to meet Mr. Brent Winters and sit down and get to know him one on one, mano y mano. Well, it was great. Um, it is a wonderful wife. And they're, you know, they, it's just amazing when you, you don't always see the, um, when you're talking to couples, you don't always see the cohesiveness of how a relationship's supposed to be. But that's what I found that my daughter loved her. Um, they just hit it off really well. And I think the same thing for Brent and I is, um, I think we wound up having a lot more in common than what I had figured. Biblically speaking, anyway, and um, we didn't get too much into law, but uh, more Bible stuff. And then the, the surroundings that we were in, I thought, was really well. Um, just trying to, I want to say this, too, right quick. The um, I got your book to the pastor up there that was holding the conference. Yeah. Uh, it, and it got in there right right before we got there. So they printed it off and got it shipped quickly. I was surprised. I, I didn't know how fast they were going to get it out. We didn't really get to talk about it much. He's been exposed to, um, Quaid. Quaid. To who? Ron Quaid. Okay. Remember Quaid? You mentioned I do. him one day. I, I, I saw him, him and his bunch do a seminar one weekend up in North Georgia. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's uh they they used to hang out up there at Kauia where when he was at Co the Church of Kauia in around three well Kauia and Three Rivers up there in the Sierra Nevadas, um, they used to come over there all the time and he understands a lot of what they taught and I don't know exactly all of what they taught I have listened to their seminars that were on uh, are on YouTube or were but. Uh, I don't know how far they go with like. Well, you know, it's, anything like that. Well, so when you're introducing when, when you're introducing new people, you know, and it's difficult to get people to have time these days. Sit down and read a book. Some people are self motivated and do it, but uh, to try and introduce them to my stuff, I always suggest you go to the a, a U.S. passport for Ed Snowden video. And and show them that and, and start the vacuum of of interest and intrigue. But uh, before we run out of time here, Chuck, thanks for calling in. I wish you called in a little bit earlier. We had a real brisk, good roundtable of people. There's a slew of people on. But I just want to uh, defer to Brent so that he's got plenty of time to tell everybody how to get in touch with him should they be new and not know. And we can uh, continue this. I wanted you to call in maybe one day when Brent isn't here and go over what happened over the weekend and stuff. But, Brent, I'm going to turn it over to you and give your website and information. And thanks, as always, amigo. And uh, likewise to you, Roger, give me an opportunity to say a few words. But join us on Saturday. We're uh, involved uh, every 
every uh, Saturday morning, and it's on the website, commonlawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com. Go to the events button, scroll down, and you can see where we're going over the law of contracts. We're in our 20, about our 30th week out of 45 presentations. And um, you can watch me. I can't see you, but you can see me. And, and then we uh, have time for, to discuss at the end. It's on a Skype kind of a platform, but it's not Skype. You can listen on your phone. You can do it on your cell phone. There, it tells you the links, gives you the links. You can do that also. Then on Sunday morning, we're going through the book of Revelation and eschatology, eschatology, which is a, a division of systematic theology. It's about end times, the culmination, eschaton of times and what's happening, the book of Revelation. That's also uh, on uh, the events button, commonlawyer.com, shows you the links. A little bit different time, that's on Sunday morning. Then we're on shortwave two days a week, and you can see when we're on shortwave by going to the website, commonlawyer.com. Again, the events button. And you can find my books at amazon.com. Just type in my name, Brent Allen Winters, and all, the, all of them will come up in a row. Among those is the a Common Lawyer Translates, the the Bible from the original tongues and annotates uh, almost 15,000 footnotes scattered throughout the 66 books of the Bible. Detailed headnotes at the beginning of each of those books. You can find how to obtain that at Amazon.com. Uh, back to you, Roger. Brent, are you on, are, is your shortwave on WWCR? Yes. Good, good, it is. good station. Good folks. 9.350, okay. I believe. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, 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 antenna number two. Go ahead. There you go. Antenna number two. It's been a long yeah. time since I missed a short life. I went up and toured that facility. It's a neat place. Good folks. Oh. We're out of time, guys. I'll see y'all Monday. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.